0: Tune to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Jerry Gibson is with the Hawaii Hotel Alliance. He was tapped to be the first chairman of the tourism group created to get out in front of issues in the hospitality industry. First came the pandemic. Then there was the move to defund the Hawaii Tourism Authority and to cut the marketing contracts. Now the focus is recovering from the Maui wildfires. The Hawaii Tourism Authority has just set aside $2.6 million for a marketing campaign for Maui. Gibson lays out how the hotels opened up to respond to this disaster and the path forward.
1: Right now we have 5,996 individuals in and around Kaanapali, to include Napili on a Kauai. And then there is uh, a smattering of, 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 uh, of, uh, of mostly FEMA and, and Red Cross uh, on the south side of the island as well. So we're housing approximately now all involved with survivors and team members, about 8,000 persons.
0: Can you talk about what the plan is going forward come October eight?
1: Sure can. Let me go back just, just a little bit. You know, I think, you know, immediately there were five shelters that were set up in and around the Lahaina. And immediately the hotels began to set up voluntarily we started taking our team members in and, and we ended up with around 700 team members uh, all in Tanapali and Kapalua and the surround there. And then we started collapsing the shelters one at a time, and we ended up with what we have today in there, almost 5,000 people. And that includes team members, survivors, Red Cross, FEMA, EPA, FBI, and National Guard, and certain amount of experts for building schools, et cetera, that are all in. Now, many cases, there may be three to a room because there's families all together, of course, and, you know, they're mindful of school. And they're mindful of as a family, doing things together as a family. And they need a kitchen and they, they, they want to have a table where kids can do homework and certainly privacy and, and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, people are starting to say, well, this hotel thing is pretty good, uh, you know, you know at, the, at the beginning, of course. But now we need somewhere to live as a family, and we want to know where we're going to be for a certain amount of time. So now the, the next thing now is moving to what I'll call short-term rentals, making them longer-term rentals. And we need approximately 2,000 of those total. And so the governor and DBED have been doing an amazing job, along with FEMA and Red Cross, trying to secure these units. And they have had, you know, some success. I think they have secured about 600 of the total we need. And the governor was speaking about this yesterday, that, you know, he's hoping that we can secure the rest that we need, about 1,400 more uh, voluntarily. And if we can't, it'd be some type of moratorium on short-term rental so that we can get the people that need to be housed, housed. And that's kind of where we are at the moment that is exactly what they're working on the main thing is to keep everybody you know with a home whether it's in a hotel right now or moving into their longer-term home uh, for the next 18 months to two years
0: how do you deal with the inventory for visitors you know as we start encouraging them to come in Malama Maui and come back and support the hospitality industry
1: That's a very important question. Now, obviously, the south side is wide open uh, right now. Kapalua, Napili, Hanukwai all ready to go as of October 8th, and certainly Kaanapali will be as well. The first really green shoots will be uh, timeshare, like it always always is. Timeshare led after Iniki, timeshare led after the virus, and they are going to lead now because... With timeshare, you know, you get a, you get people that own their units mostly, and you get, you know, repeat repeat guests, of course, and people that are used to being on Maui for about approximately a week or more a year, depending on what they own. So that will lead, and that will be Tilton Grand Vacations has a lot of timeshare there, and they do an outstanding job, Weston does, and that will start the process in Kahatapali area for reservations. Those people in the timeshare have, you know, they're, they're very good spending guests, so they go out into the community, in the restaurants, if there is, you know, activities or whatever is going to be available at the time, they will be good spenders, and they are used to being in Maui, so they'll be, you know, we think sensitive, empathetic, and mindful guests.
0: Do we have and a sense as to how many timeshare units are available?
1: Yeah, I think in that area, I'm just kind of adding them up in my head here, there's about, I think there's about 14, 13 or 1,400 units total in that, in that area between uh, Kauai and Anapali. Uh,
0: so if we just look at timeshares as leading the way for recovery, you know, then as the FEMA federal crews start to leave, those rooms will get opened up?
1: Yeah, in, in the Akana, Poly, uh area, people will start to, to migrate into short-term rentals that are going to be their homes for 18 months or longer. And that will give them, um, hopefully, a sense of a more normal environment than uh, being a little, you know, crowded in hotel rooms with their family, et cetera. So I think – and they'll have, you know, they'll have TVs and they'll have parking and they'll have a, a kitchen, et cetera, which is what people are – Course, after this long, want some sense of normalcy, so they'll have that going forward.
0: And what can you share about the marketing plan?
1: Um, HCA has come up with a $2.6 million uh, marketing plan, and the HVCB is at this moment working on that and working through the nuances of, of reintroducing this is specifically for Maui, reintroducing Maui back to the world and telling them that. Come to Maui. Be empathetic. Be mindful. We'd love to have you come back. It's going to help the economics of the island, and there's many things that you know you can do here in the in the tourism areas that you can you can enjoy. Lahaina is off limits, and, it, and well, it should be, of course. And please, you know, go go to wherever your hotel is on the south side or after October 8th on the, on the west side. I think we all need to keep in mind, though, Catherine, that right now the reservation lines will be open for after October 8th, but it is extremely slow. And the good indicator that where we're getting that is not only the reservations coming in right now very slow, but what's happening on the south side of the island, the occupancies are very, very low. And as you know, that's been, you know, wide open for a period of time now. I don't think that there's going to be a huge influx of tourists coming in. I think it will be very, very slow beginning. And by May, June next year, it will start to ramp up a little bit because of the summer. And hopefully it will begin to get better. But I think 2024 is going to be not a robust year, obviously, in Maui.
0: And you know we've been hearing about the return of the uh, Japanese tourists. Some are back. I have I've seen you know m- more people uh, out in Waikiki and uh, out in places uh, across Oahu here.
1: The Japanese visitor basically goes to Oahu and and the Big Island in very little to Maui. It's about one point four percent.
0: Really of, interesting. Of,
1: of Maui's total, yeah, they don't really go to Maui, but it will be interesting to see. How many do as time progresses a little bit? You are correct that in Waikiki right now there's been a, a, a nice little pickup in the center, more in the center of Waikiki mm-hmm. over the last uh, month. It's it's been interesting to watch. So it would be a, a wonderful green shoot if that you know that travel started to come through the uh, the islands again. But they're not usually a Maui. Traveler. Uh, And then is there
0: special marketing geared to the timeshare folks?
1: The timeshare folks, most of the people that will be coming will be those going to see if they want to buy timeshare and there's a lot of owned timeshare there already. They also do when they have units that are not sold and they sell the unit 51 or 52 weeks out of the year with timeshare, they can rent those out they're very popular rentals because they have a living room they have a, you know they obviously have a kitchen they have a full kitchen most of them and very nice accommodation bedrooms etc so when they're not sold which is the case in you know with the different companies they can put them up for market and so they'll rent them like they do a hotel
0: and that was Jared gibson who is with the hawaii hotel alliance talking about how he expects the reopening of maui to be gradual But he worries if enough visitors don't return, we could have a double whammy of an economic crisis if families begin leaving the island. Gibson believes it is the timeshare segment that will lead our recovery on the Valley Isle.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha United Way, partnering with local workplaces to engage teams motivated to help impact the community. More about its workplace campaign at auw.org.
0: If you excel at business development, have media sales experience, and love public radio, we've got the job opportunity for you. HBR's corporate relations team is growing and seeking candidates for a corporate relations associate. This is an opportunity to build media strategies to help organizations bring their message to HBR's audience. Learn more about this position at hawaiipublicradio.org jobs.
2: Support for HPR comes from Waikaloa Beach Resort on the island of Hawaii, offering Kama'aina hospitality with a range of options for dining, shopping, and activities. More about rediscovering the Kohala Coast at (music) waikaloabeachresort.com.
0: Quality check today with Honolulu Civil Beat focuses on the safe return of residents to their homes and businesses. Reporter Paula Dobman joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, you know, we've been hearing a lot about how these zones are opening up, but there is a lot of worry about the toxic stuff that's on the ground, the ash that could be disturbed.
3: Yes. um, People definitely need to be really cautious when they go into the burn zone and ideally be wearing a P100 respirator with cartridges, um, Tyvek coveralls, and uh, booties and gloves. The ash does contain a lot of toxins that can make people really sick, maybe not immediately, but years down the line. So it's just really important to be as cautious as possible.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's still a very hazardous area, you know, and I know the EPA has tried to clear out as much of the uh, hazardous material as possible, I think the big stuff, but, yeah, I think it's the fine particles, uh, you know, what's in the air that uh, could be a real hazard.
3: Yeah, so um, I was told that the residents will not be allowed to actually dig through the rubble themselves. There will be trained personnel doing that for them, but they will be able to, be you know near their properties, but yesterday in a videotape message, the administrator of Maui Emergency Management Agency said that people will be asked to take a very gentle approach, as he explained it, to not really you know move the ash around because you know as is well known that the ash does contain many many toxins, and when it becomes airborne you definitely do not want to be inhaling that stuff. So, you know, it will be it will be one of these situations where people are just going to be advised to be extremely, extremely cautious.
0: Yes, and, you know, I, I know folks are anxious to look for their personal mementos, you know, in their homes. And who knows, there may still be some human remains that weren't, you know, discovered uh, as the federal officials were combing through there.
3: That is possible. Um, I don't have too much information about where the status of the search for human remains stands at this time, but it is a very delicate area. And this will be, you know, just a process that is going to be fraught with, you know, many things emotions. You know, these um, survivors are going to be seeing their properties for the first time. And obviously, it's going to be a very difficult uh, process for many people. You know, it could be cathartic on many levels, but, um, but also, you know, very, very hard. And so the county has said that, um, you know, they will have trained counselors nearby. Um, DOH is going to have um, officials when people are picking up their passes and getting these reentry kits uh, to explain to them how to use the PPE so it sounds like, you know, there's going to be a lot of steps taken to ensure that this is done as safely as possible and that there are supports in place for people that are going to be going through this, this process. But um, no doubt it's going to be difficult on many levels and, you know, potentially hazardous. So just the way it
0: is. Yeah, and you know, the county folks, I mean, they're really, those workers are really the boots on the ground, and they're really trying to manage this kind of hotspot area. They don't want just looky-loos coming through here, because it is still hazardous.
3: Yes, definitely, and one of the experts that I talked to for my story mentioned that people living on the perimeter of the burn zone are also, you know, at risk. Some people have taken it upon themselves to Build these um, homemade air filters, Corsi like Rosenthal boxes they are called, and you know he mentioned that while those type of do-it-yourself home air filters can um, keep out some of the stuff that's blowing around in the air, they're not going to be able to filter out, you know, really toxic things like asbestos or lead or arsenic or volatile organic compounds. So. Um, you know, he, he did caution that if you are relying on one of these homemade air filters, you know, you might at the very least get sheets of activated carbon to, to put into those devices. But, you know, I think the bottom line is that people should just be aware that the air in and around the burn zone is highly toxic and they need to take the proper steps to protect themselves.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we definitely uh, want to make safety number one for sure for everybody. But thanks so much, Paula. You bet, Catherine. Take care. That was reporter Paula Dobbin with today's reality check. Read her story at org. of the Maui wildfires, there's been increasing attention given to how non-native species affect the local environment. There have been hard talks about how the true impact of wild grasses, irrigation, and housing work in the larger ecosystem. Today we spotlight a new program recently launched by the Department of Land and Natural Resources. Uh, Chanel Yi and Dustin Palos are two of the four inaugural researchers. They've been focused on tree canopy research in our urban forests and the role of trees in our communities. The Conversations Stephanie Hahn talked to Yi and Palos about their findings.
4: When we're talking about tree canopy, we're talking about how much area that our trees are covering when we're looking at the city scale, seeing its coverage relative to a lot of gray infrastructure, and with that comes a lot of conversation about the benefits that tree canopies provide, such as reducing urban heat island effect or reducing stormwater flooding, as well as many other benefits, and including intrinsic benefits that trees provide. Is this something
5: that you had direct experience with growing up? Were you an urban child?
4: Definitely. Um, I grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii, so I'm definitely familiar with the urban core, as well as the street trees that lined my neighborhood. But outside of that, I actually pursued an undergraduate degree in urban forestry, specifically at the University of British Columbia. So in that degree, I learned a lot more about tree canopies and their benefits, and the human dimension that comes with tree canopies.
5: Since the fires, has the direction of your research or your findings changed?
6: I believe my findings could lead to policy and better decision making and future planning in communities. We don't have enough people planting native trees to help with our communities and these natural areas and these surrounding areas and hopefully that will change in, in our lifetime. And the whole goal of my research is to encourage biocultural resources, specifically endemic natives and indigenouses, as well as canoe crops. Raise awareness about the risk of threats to our natural environments or even our backyards. We already know how about weeds or some plants can be nuisances, from having pokies or Just being aggressive, and you have to cool them out all the time.
5: When you're talking about the native trees, is this something that would have reacted maybe differently to the fires or not?
6: Fire is not a natural uh, environmental element here in Hawaii, minus the lava and the volcanoes. It wasn't a constant occurrence like other parts of the world. So not all of our native trees are resistant to fire. However, I believe that it would probably have slowed down the process of the movement of these fires because of the greenery and all the water that they can hold in their their trunks mm-hmm. and in their composition. Versus being a non-native species that may have lots of fuel in their trunks and in their composition that may... Uh, again, help fuel the fires versus slowing down the movement and velocity of of these events.
5: Chanel, I know that your research centers also on the Big Island. Is there, you feel, a difference between the different islands in terms of the landscape and the type of tree canopy that would ideally be designed, or are they all very similar?
4: Definitely there will be some differences and some gradients, especially when we're looking at windward or leeward sides of the islands and talking about different tree canopy or just species composition in general across the island chain we do have this common history of colonization and that came with the introduction of many non-native and invasive species that spread rapidly across the entire island and these non-native species have a lot of characteristics that make them susceptible to fire and extreme fire behavior and resonating or continuing what Dustin said about our native tree canopies, they do possess these drought hardiness and fine fuel moisture traits that are a bit more resistant to fire behavior. And so yeah, our landscapes do look different across the island, but I think the islands do share a similar history in terms of a lot of introduced non-native species. That have drastically changed how fire moves across the landscape.
5: And are there certain places right now where tree canopies are being planned? And what stage are we with this process?
4: City and County of Honolulu, they have a tree planting goal. And I'm not sure where they are in that planting process right now, but that's the thing. A lot of our counties and a lot of the islands are creating these big, lofty goals of we want X amount of trees by 2030 or increase canopy coverage by this percent. And there are a lot of goals and initiatives that exist out there, but I think there needs to be a lot of focus on the actual implementation stage of these goals and ensuring that we are planting trees where they will have successful establishment so that they can produce a lot of these benefits that we're talking about when it comes to tree canopy.
5: Was there ever a point, let's say on Maui or on the Big Island or here in Oahu, where there were a lot of tree canopy and where there was sufficient shade for the population? Is this new that there's a dearth of coverage or is this something that has always been an issue within Hawaii?
6: deforestation and the change of land tenure and landscapes has been an ongoing generational, centuries long um, occurrences, as Chanel mentioned, as colonization came. So the landscape changes and the introductions of many non-Natives, not only to uh, the natural environment, but even to uh, our society. It's like, why don't we have more of these kinds of environments that are part instead of chiave or some other invasive species, encourage this native restorations. and not only again for just because it's native, but because it is resilient to this environment and has been adapted to these hard- or hardness of this zone, these microclimates.
5: so Chanel, what would be the concrete result? if we were to establish these tree canopies around the island? I mean, how would this affect us as a people in your estimation?
4: With climate change and land use change, there has to be a lot of concentration on which species can withstand these changes that we'll be experiencing, Um, particularly the leeward sides of our islands will be experiencing a lot more drought extreme drought and these warmer temperatures so having species that can withstand those extremes but also I think native species restoration is a huge project and a huge initiative that is worth continuing because as Dustin said these native species have the traits to withstand these climatic shifts but I think a lot of continued work needs to be given to species composition. But something that I will say is our urban expansion plans, particularly that um, Hawaii County has, are in areas where tree canopy is low to none and rather surrounded by a lot of non-native invasive grasses that are fire adapted. And so when we're thinking about increasing tree canopy and native species restoration, it's worth noting that these urban areas are devoid almost of such canopies. And there's a role that these trying to keep tree canopies play when it comes to fire risk mitigation, and that's something that expansion goals need to be considerate of, especially where we do have majority of the population, you know, in our urban centers and where it is kind of dominated by great infrastructure. Having more initiatives to increase that green cover definitely will see a change in attitudes and a change in relationship with the land.
5: Dustin, do you have any suggestions? Let's just say you're a person and you care about a tree canopy. What's an action that one person or a neighborhood or maybe just one school might take in this direction?
6: Or just a regular person go out and plant the tree, even though um, like a mango tree or some kind of tree for the next generation because Some mangoes might not give out a fruit in our generation, like many other trees, so that fruit might come in the next generation.
5: That's interesting. Someone had told me there's a Talmudic Jewish saying that what a person's supposed to do is to, one, plant a tree, two, have a child, and three, write a book for the next generation. You know, what you're saying and the story you're telling— I feel is a is a larger global answer and philosophy that's behind a lot of this thought of the tree canopy.
4: I think when it comes to quote unquote managing our landscapes, I think given what you've very colonial history, a lot of the work has to come from a place of fostering the relationship to the land and when we're talking about repairing relationships, I think the first relationship is the relationship of people to their land, and that's something that I think gets overlooked, and so it's creating space for that, and I really acknowledge Dustin's work of kind of having that connection, you know, going back to the land and getting back into this relationship of reciprocity and creating initiatives or whatever that looks like of allowing quote-unquote allowing people to their own land you know and managing it the way that they seem best to fit the needs of the community
5: the one thing still standing in Lahaina was the tree and I didn't know if you had any thoughts about this and maybe what it might mean Uh, for the tree canopy or for anything else
6: yeah this might ruffle a little feathers but you know for me the whole thing was, uh, save the Banyan tree, save the Banyan tree. What about like all the Ulus that were there even 100 or 200 mm-hmm. years prior to that Banyan tree? So this whole um, cause and movement to save the Banyan tree is that perpetuation of colonialism and making colonialism come before indigenous peoples who have been here millennia before them.
0: And that was uh, Dustin Palos and Chanel Yi, talking to HVR Stephanie Hahn about a new forestry research program looking at the health of our trees uh, across our community.
2: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
0: Hello, I'm Margaret Wrinkle, author of The Comfort of Crows. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the natural world that exists in our own backyards.
2: Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Outrigger Resorts and Hotels committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land, outrigger.com
0: the born track and field athlete, the Longa. Tosanga, or Lange, as she's known in the sport, recently made history. She became the first U.S. woman to win a world championship in the discus throw this past August, and she did it in dramatic fashion.
2: Round five for the Iowa Hawkeye grad.
7: And she had just set that nice personal best. Lange Tosanga. She can't even believe it. She threw a
8: home
2: run the previous round. This was a grand slam. That looks like it's enough to take the lead. Gita made it to the World Championships twice before. Fouled all three throws back in Doha. Finished 12th last year in Oregon. Needed a sixth and final throw in Oregon just to get the qualifying standard to be in Hungary. And in the fifth round, shocks the world's best and becomes the first American ever to be the world champion in the women's discus.
0: That's terrific. Taosanga was born on Oahu, but moved to California when she was seven. The Conversations' Russell Subiano uh, got the chance to talk to Taosanga about her historic victory.
9: What was that feeling like when you realized that you were at the top and that you had the potential to win the gold? What was that feeling like?
10: I guess the feeling was almost like finally taking a deep breath after being underwater for so long i didn't have the best season coming in and i you know you hear people saying no you can be one of the best but when you're you're not yet it's kind of just like smoke and mirrors you're like yeah whatever okay my coach was like you know you have the potential to be one of the best in the world and i was like mm, yeah okay like i haven't been consistent things aren't happening well so like when that throw left my hand it was literally a moment where i was like that was it that's the one. And like, I, I didn't realize at the time that I had passed anybody yet. I just knew that I was like, you hit it and you did exactly what you needed to do. And I was just so shocked in the ring. I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, that was definitely a personal best after the rounds when everybody went and I was the last girl standing and I was still in that first place moment. I just, again, it was just like a breath. I was just like, oh my goodness. Like you, you did that. You went above and beyond what you even thought you could do. And so it was so many emotions, like I couldn't help but like just start crying before I even stepped into the ring to take my last throw.
9: One thing I always wonder is once an athlete breaks through into that moment where they're a champion or they've done something, they've accomplished something that they've never accomplished before, what does that do for you psychologically? Like when you go into your next meet, do you feel like you belong? Are you more confident?
10: It's kind of like a double-edged sword, right? So you're like, I am now one of the best, but then you're also like, Oh my goodness, everybody's looking at me. I had one of my first practices after landing down in China and my coach was like, are you okay? And I was like, I think I'm having a panic attack. And he was like, just breathe. And I was like, I never felt that before. I was like the weight of, of coming off such a performance. And then, you know, people were asking me like, are you going to do this again at the diamond league? Are you going to do this? And I was just like, I don't know. I can't tell you like, this is, that's the beauty of the sport. It's, who is good on that day, mentally and physically. And I was like, now there's more pressure on that. But at the same time, while I was in there, I had to give myself the grace period of understanding that you are the best, but the best also have bad days. Mm -hmm. So it's okay, it can go either way. And I, I do think that winning gave me the opportunity to look back at my career and be like, all of those terrible times was for this moment. You are the world, you're one of the world's best. But then it also gives me the understanding that like, Now, how are we going to move forward with that? What is the plan? Like, we can't change things dramatically, but we also can't stay the same. So I I guess now it's better for me because I'm at a better mental state where it's just like, whatever comes, comes. We just Mm got to make sure that we're ready.
9: I was listening to what the commentators were saying as the last handful of throws were being done. The commentator said this, it's so hard to throw far when you're trying to throw far there's something in the way the women have to relax and hit the positions and be able to put it out there. Can you talk a little bit about what he meant about relaxing? It is true, you know,
10: you have to relax because the harder you try to throw, the worse to throw. Because when you tighten up, when you, you're like trying to just keep all the energy in into the last moment, the more likely you are to have errors. And so you want to give yourself the best chance because, again, you know, there's medals on the line, but there's also, you know, money. Like, it's it's a very hard sport to make money in if you're not in the top. So you have to kind of tell yourself, you're like, look, you have to calm down. Nerves are like gas. Like, you want to make sure that you put the right one into your tank. So I could even have those nerves that are good for me to... Gear me up to relax, but also be like, it's go time, or I can be like, oh my gosh, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go until I ultimately destroy myself in that competition. Yeah.
9: One thing I always was curious about whenever I watch track and field, every time there's a a hammer throw or a shot put or a discus, athletes are very vocal upon release, right? How does that play into the strategy? Is that just, you know, a way of getting out all that extra energy? So
10: for most of them, the initial grunt, for the most part, is is not just because we want to. People don't understand that although these are bigger people, right, we are using so much core power. And so it's almost like as soon as you get in a position, you know, you're twisting your body a certain way that when you hit it, it naturally just, ugh, it just comes yeah. out. It, it's just a, that air is being forcibly pushed out of your body but then the ones that come afterwards you know are are just the excitement of that person and how that person puts out their their leftover energy so like in some of mine I'll throw and I'll have that initial you know scream but then I'll come back around and I'll see it and I will scream at my discus to keep going yeah so like in the preliminary rounds that we had when I was in qualifying I hit a throw and I was like
5: there you go <laughs>
10: I'm screaming at this discus because, like, it's just this emotion, right? When you hit it, you're just like, I have to say something. There are some women who just, or men, who hit it. They have that initial grunt, and that's it. And there's some where it's like, when it's good or when it's bad, they have to let out the rest of that energy that's from that throw.
9: I know you were born here in Hawaii, and you were raised in California. Do you still have a connection to Hawaii? Do you still come and visit? Do you still have family here?
10: Yes, I do. My sister moved back there and she's a realtor out there. And then I also have a couple cousins who are there and I, I come out periodically to come and see family. It's weird because it's home, but it's not. And um, the only way I can describe it is I was in school for two years before I left at Pearl Harbor Elementary. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things where I realized that I wasn't going back home and I cried to my mom about it was that every morning she would go to the 7-Eleven right next to the school and she would get me two musubis <laughs> and she'd be like, up do not eat both of them before breakfast. <laughs> Keep them in your bag and wait until after school. So when you're after school, you can eat it. Cause she was a school nurse. And so she's like, just mm-hmm. wait and eat it then. And I would always eat them right when I got off the car. <laughs> so she'd make us breakfast at home. And then I would just like, oh my I'm going to open up these movies right now. I'm going to eat two of them right now. And I'd open it. And then I would, I would go to the nursing office after school and be like, I'm hungry. There's no more food. And she's like, I told you to wait. <laughs> so when, you know, she, she took us from Hawaii and, we first landed in San Diego because we, at the time, we were just visiting and I went to a 7-Eleven and I asked the lady at the front and I was like, where's the Bees? And she goes, the what? I was like, oh, did she not hear me? The Bees. And you know, I'm seven years old. I'm starting to get mad. I'm like, where's the Bees? Like, I need these right now. And then my mom comes up. She's like, I am so sorry. And she looks at me. She was like, they don't have bees here. And I was like, we need to go home immediately. I was like, we need we need to go home right now. And she was like, no, like, we just got to stay here for a little bit. Like, we'll, we'll go home soon." She lied because we stayed here. <laughs> uh, and so every time I see you 7 Eleven when I when I go back to Hawaii, I'm just like, man, I just think of seven-year-old me being so mad about not having musubis. but it was just such a big part because everyone has that moment where like you get to go to the store and pick something out with your right. with your with your mom or an auntie or an uncle. But it's just a lot more because in Hawaii, you know, there's only specific snacks and such that you can get from there that that make you feel like you're at home. And so like when we left. I didn't have that, so like my mom had to, you know, she had to make musubi's at home, so that she's like, it's okay, like this is home now. And so it's it's weird because I'm like, oh, I'm home, but at the same time, it's like I haven't been here. I I left when I was seven, so like there's so many things I don't know. And my siblings, my three older siblings, grew up out there, and so they'll tell me like, well, like we used to take you here, and there's this, and so like I'm I'm learning things about Hawaii that like I used to, but I was just too young to yeah. to kind of put into memory. And so it's it's like bittersweet. Like, I love coming back. But then also I'm like, dang, I wonder what life would have been like if I would have just stayed home. But I, I, I love coming back to the island.
9: What did it mean to you to be a Polynesian woman and the first American woman to win a world championship in the discus?
10: It's indescribable because we do see women shot putters. You know, there was Valerie Adams for the shot from New Zealand and I was like okay you know we have some heavy hitters out there but I hadn't seen a discus thrower except for someone like I believe before I was born and so you kind of walk through life and you're just like all right there's not a lot of us out here I'd seen some of us in college and I was like all right you know but I think with Polynesian communities we're so set on certain sports you know the boys go play football rugby and the girls do volleyball and I realized as I was going through school and through professional when, when a lot of us would just go back home to get jobs, I was like, there is so much untapped talent because we're so focused on certain sports. And so, you know, when I won, I was like, okay, this is amazing because this shows that like we're out here. We have the ability to do great things. And I, I hope that it inspires a lot of us because there's no way that we shouldn't be out here. There's no way that we shouldn't be able to dominate other sports. And I was so glad when I got to see messages from some of the, the younger Polynesian girls that I coached here in California. And I was just like, I hope this inspires so many more like them, because this is a, a field that is lacking of Polynesian representation. And I hope that by me showing up and, and doing it, it gets more of them out there. Like, look, we can actually do something that's not just in these regular sports that we're used to.
9: Lalonga, thanks so much for your time this morning.
0: Yes, thank you so much for having me. That was professional track and field athlete La Longa Tausonga, the first U.S. woman to win a world championship in the discus. She was talking with H.B.R.'s Russell Sumbiano. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply with ideas to help reduce water waste during these hot, dry months, such as installing a weather-based irrigation controller. More at BoardOfWaterSupply.com. On a day trip, you can see what's upriver from New Orleans. The remnants of
7: indigenous architecture, you see what's left of plantations, and you see what replaced them.
2: Get updated on the social and political scene in Germany. We're not just gloomy Nazis. We're not concentration camps only. And hear how people are getting back to traveling again. Join us for the next Travel with Rick Steves. Beginning Sunday at noon. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Thank you.
0: Up next, we have HBR's Dave Lawrence with a road story about this weekend's Garden Isle Community Benefit Concert, entitled "Grateful Mantra." It features Grateful Dead founding member and drummer Bill Kreutzmann, and includes Hawai'i's own Kanikoa and Stephen Inglis.
8: Coming up this weekend, Friday and Saturday night at uh, the Porter Pavilion in Kilauea on the Garden Isle. It is "Grateful Mantra," a pair of local community benefits. Bill Kreutzmann, one of the two drummers from the Grateful Dead, lives on Kauai, has for a number of years. He's gathered some musicians, including Stephen Inglis from the Honolulu area, who's going to be part of this. Proceeds from the show are going towards someone in the community's needs over there. Hasn't really been fleshed out real well, but it is a benefit. And we're excited to welcome uh, Bill Kreutzman back from the Grateful Dead. He should be on the line right now. Billy. Dave Lawrence. What's up, Cuz? How you been?
7: I've been good. Nice. Where are you?
8: We're right here in Honolulu. I'm assuming you're over there on the Garden Island.
7: I am. I definitely am. Nice. Well, great. Thanks for inviting me.
8: You're very what welcome. A great
7: cause. And, a great uh, reason to do well, it.
8: Well, that's what we want to hear about, actually. So first, before we get into the musical aspect, this show is a benefit and you just said it's a great cause. Explain what's in store for these shows and why are you doing it? What's the benefit part about?
7: Okay, well, the benefit is to help a, a local brother here who needs some uh, help, uh, financial help, and that's he's a friend of mine, and I just felt and I wanted to do that for him, and so that's that's that part. I don't want to put out his name or anything. No, I get uh, you. The physical part it, it's it's just mostly I would like thinking about it. It's just a good gig. It's a, it's a good thing to play. We got great musicians going to be on board. Uh, Lebo from AOL. He also plays with Jack Johnson's band. He's a collaborator in that band. Reed Mathis and Stephen Inglis, who you know from Honolulu. Yep, he lives over there. And uh, the the mystery person is going to be Adam McDougal. He's from the band called Circles Around the Sun, which is a real cool instrumental band. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, and so these guys are all up come to donate their time and, and help for this. And I love getting more music over
9: here.
8: Well, one of the great things about the tradition of the uh, Grateful Dead really has always been helping folks and sometimes it is generosity. The personal kinds like you described that you guys have been involved in for decades to help people in need utilizing what you have, your own gift to draw people together to hear music. Uh Uh-huh. And the music that y'all
7: are going to be throwing down, Billy? It's going to have Grateful Dead tunes that'll have other songs that uh, these guys will bring. We're going to have the first rehearsal Tomorrow, I'm going to do two rehearsals for it, and uh, those are really great fun because you get to pick what you want to play and don't want to play, and what sounds good and doesn't sound good. Most everything sounds good, so it it becomes a hard question of how much time you have and how much music you can put on the night. Sure. Playing in my band, Billy and the kids, and and we've been just having a world of fun out there. I can't believe it. This is just a little... Side vent from that band, you know. Feeling the bluegrass, where where you you share people a lot, and people come and visit a lot. You know, that's what I like to do.
8: When it comes to that musical scene over there, Billy, in terms of cats yeah. like you, uh, does Carlos Santana, Todd Rundgren, Graham Nash, are they still all living over there? Do you guys ever bump into each other?
7: Uh, I'm afraid we don't. Um, I, Carlos played with me about two years ago. I'm one of my Billy and the Kids. Uh, shows that we did here we taped it and, and put it on nugs or put it out somewhere he played but and that and it was wonderful I would certainly like to see him more the other side of it that you mentioned which is
8: uh, recently there were some stories on NPR about the history of the dead as uh Mm -hmm. dead and company was rapping but what they missed in some of that which i was hoping you could kind of provide because my boss bill i was telling him you know what they really missed bill there's one thing about Mm -hmm. the dead that has not been really explained well and that was throughout the 70s and then ending with the summer tour of 1989 there was an extremely Mm -hmm. unique camping and vending scene now while vending may have continued after that point the camping did not
7: the camping got so crazy that it, a lot of the promoters didn't want to do that they, they couldn't control it and it was too expensive whatever uh myriad of excuses the promoters like to come up with or the people that run those shows the cam- the other part of it though the um Oh, I don't know. What do you call it? The street level of selling stuff, you know, the little booths and everything. That's continued. Yeah. I'd love that. i laugh. I mean, we go to, when we used to play, uh, we go to the drudgy cities, right? And you could tell you're getting near the gig because everything got brighter. Right. That's one thing I'm doing in, in these shows coming up this weekend is I'm continuing that energy, the Grateful day Energy.
8: When did you remember or how did the camping part begin? How promoters and you guys negotiated to even allow something so unique mm-hmm. and, and community-oriented?
7: One reason you didn't allow it, you, you appreciated it. When it first started, it was like, oh, what a compliment. They want to come and live with us. They want to come and see us more. You know, it was taken as a beautiful thing, as, as something that you can use as a, a really a good thing for people. Mm-hmm. You know, let them come and stay. Uh, we're going to play two nights, three nights, whatever you're going to play. Let them come and stay and, and see all those nights and not have to play for a new hotel every night. I think camping should be reinstated is what I'm saying. I think it's a good thing.
8: Oh, it was huge.
7: I think it's an amazing
8: thing. I don't think people who listen can understand the concept of rolling up to a venue. Imagine there's going to be a four-night Grateful Dead thing. And when you entered, there'd be a big flashing like construction sign, and it would say, Overnight Parking and an Arrow. And when you went to that (laughs) side, instead of paying $8 for one night of staying there, you paid
7: $32, but you could stay. Are you going campground I think it was first come first serve back in those days you know before all the the, the fancy stuff but in in those original days every, yeah, everything uh, trains were better back then uh, airplanes were more fun back then so it's a it's a hard one to say well it's just fascinating stuff we'd be here talking
8: about it all day but uh the shows are this weekend really excited that we got to talk to you again it's friday and saturday night They're over at the Porter Pavilion, Kilauea, amazing sight there on Kauai. Grateful Mantra, he's calling it. Bill Kreutzmann from the Grateful Dead telling us some fun stories today, too. And you stay safe. You too. Love getting those classic stories out there, sharing with folks.
7: A-plus, man. That's really good, brother. I'm glad you're doing that. And you too. All right, my friend. Thank you, brother. Aloha. Aloha.
0: HPR's Dave Lawrence giving us a road story about a benefit concert tonight and tomorrow at the Porter Pavilion in Kilauea on Kauai. The concert features Bill Kreutzmann, who will be joined by many others, including Steve Inglis and the band Kanekoa.
4: She has no pain. Like a child, she's pure. She is luxury.
0: Well, that does it for this Aloha Friday. Next week, we plan to sit down with Ernie Lau, the Honolulu Board of Water Supplies chief engineer, as the defueling of Red Hill is just a couple of weeks away. What are your thoughts as we enter this historic phase in the shutdown of the military facility? Color Talkback Line 808 792 8217. Write to us at Talkback at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Our show is archived on the HPR website, also available as a podcast. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. The backyard quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.